This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's have a great show today to kick off the last day of January. Just like that, January's behind us. Ooh. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, pretty chilly morning out there for the bulk of the province, but c'est la vie, tis winter after all. All right, so last day of NHL games before the All-Star break, and I'm talking to some of my Oiler fan buddies that are here in the office and in my social circles. Pretty much poor time for them to see the All-Star break coming with a streak of 16 consecutive victories, but there we go. Sports memorabilia. I don't do much in the way of collecting them, and of course, when you look at the price at some of the things like hockey cards, for instance, what they gain on the auction market. You bemoan the fact we played all those games and knockdowns and put them in the spokes of our bike just to make a bit of noise as we scooted around. So there's a great story coming from the province of Saskatchewan. A family has discovered what people refer to as the holy grail of sports collectibles. So they've got this large case filled with thousands of unopened OPG brand cards all from 1979. Why is that of note? Because Wayne Gretzky was a rookie in 1979 and that is the most coveted card in the hockey world is a Gretzky rookie card. So it's up for auction. The bill is already, the, pardon me, the bid is already top $1.125 million. So here's the trick. The most expensive Gretzky rookie card, which was in absolutely perfect mint condition, it sold on auction recently for $3.75 million. You know, even one that's a little bit ragged can be still worth six figures. So nobody has any real idea how many Gretzky rookie cards might be in it. But one of the auctioneers, and this might be just in an effort to drive up the bids, he says there may be somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 27 Gretzky cards, potentially in this case. So I don't know if people uh, listening to the program are big collectibles, but are big on collectibles, but not $3.75 million for a hockey card. Anyway, full case of them. A couple of quick random notes in the world of sports. Dave Williams, big uh, NFL fan. Of course, the Baltimore Ravens kind of laid an egg over the weekend, didn't play very well at all. But one of their all-time greats, Ray Lewis. It was on this date in 2000, linebacker Ray Lewis involved in a fight resulting in the deaths of two people, Jacinta Baker and Richard Lawler. He was charged with murder and assault. Later, the murder murder charges were dropped, but it never stuck to him at all. Didn't hamper his personal and public persona. It's just a strange story. And on this date, 2015, 17-year-old Lydia Ko from New Zealand became the youngest golfer, men or women's golf, to be ranked number one in the world at 17 years of age. And this one is going to be completely random. So, of course, over the Christmas season, we all spend a lot of time and money and effort trying to apply scotch tape as we wrap up the gifts. It was on this date in 1930 that 3M, the company that makes scotch tape, began to market the product. I often wondered, and this just kind of jumped out of nowhere this morning, why do they call it scotch tape? Like, what does scotch have anything to do with an adhesive? But here's how, here's how the, the name was born. So the fellow who made the uh, product, Richard Drew, he was testing his first masking tape to determine how much of he, adhesive he actually needed. The body shop painter became frustrated with the sample of masking tape and exclaimed, take this tape back to those Scottish bosses of yours and tell them to put more adhesive on it. And that, of course, was a derogatory swat as stereotypical Scottish thriftiness. The name stuck. So the blade not only did it stuck, but in, until 1944, the mascot was one called 
Paul called Scotty McTape, a kilted boy with enthusiasm for tape, of all things. Scotch tape because of a derogatory stereotypical swat. Okay. Lots of interests uh, in this story, provincially, nationally, and internationally. It's the observance of a shipwreck off a of Cape Ray. So people point to the fact that with the heaving seas through uh, post-tropical storm Fiona, that the wreck was made visible. Now they're trying to scramble to see what they can do to preserve the wreck, have further examination, maybe identify what this wreckage is. It's pretty massive. It's about 100 feet long. The problem is, since it came so close to shore, now in the recent past with some of the waves pushing it back in the other direction, it's moved some 200 feet already. So apparently on Monday while I was away, there was a lot of interest in this story. And it is, of course, fascinating. And of course, in this process, province or off Sable Island, for instance, with the graveyard for so many ships and the shipwrecks, when they're identified, there's a certain nostalgia and historical significance associated with this. So apparently it was uh, all the rage on Monday morning, and if you want to bring it forward again today, we can do it. Sticking with wreckage, and this is an interesting story with a connection to this province, an American explorer thinks they may have found Amelia Earhart's plane. So when she was attempting to circumnavigate the globe with her navigator, Fred Noonan, lost around 1937. So they've been looking for this wreck for quite a long time. Curiously, they had a really good idea the path with which Earhart was taken, and so now they think they found it, just off a place called Howland Island. Now, the image is a sonar picture. You can't really make much of it, but they're pretty confident that they found the wreckage. It's weird that it's taken so long for this to happen. So, uh, of course, Amelia Earhart's reference to Newfoundland and Labrador took off from an airship in Harbor Grace back in May of 1932, becoming the first woman to fly a solo across the Atlantic, landing 14 hours and 50, 56 minutes later in a field near Londonderry in Northern Ireland. I think they found the wreckage of Amelia Earhart's long-lost plane. Interesting stuff. Okay. This story here is just, you know, what are people like? Someone sent me a screen grab, well, many people sent me the screen grab, of someone taking a selfie in their car, and what was plainly visible was a bottle of beer in the cup holder and a bottle of beer between the legs of her passenger. So, of course, the RNC go on to say that they don't monitor social media 24-7 looking for things like this. You have to make them aware by calling the RNC. But because of it, and the backlash and the outrage was real. You know, we talk about the scourge that is drinking and driving. But how, how brain dead must you be? to take a selfie in the car where everyone can see the open beer bottles. And as a result, a lady out in paradise has been ticketed for having open liquor in the vehicle. So if you see things like this, social media is where people will run to post these screen grabs or voice their concerns about crime and or trying to bring the attention of the RNC into one issue or another. But you really have to call them and identify the problem. And hopefully there'll be some follow-up like there was in this case. You know, open booze in the car. I mean, we hear the stories of drunk driving. We're still awaiting the uh, outcome of the investigation into the Arnold's Cove crash where now two young women are dead. There was suspicion of the driver of one of the vehicles being inebriated or under the influence. And so open liquor in the vehicle. Why don't we take a picture? Amazing stuff. All right. This story will inevitably draw emotions for people who are tuning in this morning who are lovers, lovers of animals, which will probably be most of you. 
So it takes a lot for charges to be laid under the criminal code. You know, quite often when there's cruelty against animals has been identified, investigations take place, there are charges brought forward under the Animal Health and Protection Act. But in this case, it's the Criminal Code of Canada, given just the severity of the maltreatment. So there's 44 charges in total. So this lady's from Western Newfoundland, lives in the uh, community called Hetherington. So the RNC, or the RCMP were made aware. They went to the site to investigate. They found a number of goats deceased. A number of other animals p- appeared to be extremely malnourished and not properly cared for. Problem with their feet, which of course impedes their ability to walk. So it must have been a grotesque sight to see these charges laid under the Criminal Code of Canada. You know, I think animal lovers will be keen to point out when they think there's an issue. It's not that long ago, there was a story from the province's west coast regarding the hoarding of cats, which is in, its, in and of itself some form of cruel it's impossible to take care of dozens and in some cases hundreds of animals inside the home so if you're an animal lover you know these cases are probably a little bit more common than not and criminal criminal code charges to be laid to this breadth and length 44 charges in total animal cruelty is just a disgraceful story every time we see it and broach it but we have to talk about it okay let's keep going back to industry so world energy gh2 for a long time, there was huge concern, concentration, commentary, and debate about whether or not these projects are wanted in one part of the province or another. I do think the involvement of John Risley makes World Energy GH2 a real flashpoint for many people. But they've resubmitted an amended environmental assessment. So the government, of course, was supposed to make a decision sometime last fall on this particular proposal. There has indeed been five projects advanced. Pattern Energy not involved in government's formal proposal because out of the Port of Argentia, it's not crown land. So the problem with the initial submission was that even folks who are maybe even pretty tech savvy and very interested in and following along the conversation regarding hydrogen, it was technically overwhelming. It was for me anyway. I had a devil of a time trying to navigate that particular document, and it was a hefty document to add to the technical-related conversation and verbiage being used. But now it's been submitted. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. I'm assuming it's going to be as difficult to digest as the initial one. But anyway, so the deadline for public comment, which is certainly welcome on this program, whether you're all in or opposed to these projects, there's still lots of looming questions about hydrogen, whether it be green, gray, or white. So, again, there's a bunch of things here. So, public comment deadline is uh, March 20. Minister Davis, who's responsible for making this decision of yay or nay, that is due by April the 9th. We still don't really know a bunch of different things here. So, there's certainly some associated concerns regarding the cost of green hydrogen, but that's not really my concern. It would be the end consumer. Now, everyone talks about Germany and the MOUs that have been signed. Even the Germans have set aside $1.2 billion to subsidize the cost of using green hydrogen as the end user. So, there's that. Also, there's probably not going to be any final investment decisions, even if we see green lights off regarding an environmental assessment, until the federal government figures out how to put clear definitions in place about what constitutes green. In Nova Scotia, if they generate the hydrogen, much of that power will come from coal-fired, which is the furthest thing from green. In this province, of course, access and inter, uh, intertwined with the electrical grid, of which there's still looming questions about how that's going to work and associated cost. 
But of course, renewables add up to about 80% of the generation in this province. So still a lot left to understand about this. There will be available copies for folks who were interested in to sit down and try to get through this document. So they're going to be in the public libraries, Bay St. George South, Cape St. George, Lourdes, St. George's, Stephenville, Stephenville Crossing, and Upper Ferry, the Conroy Valley. They're also going to be available at the World Energy GH2 offices in Stephenville. In the world of hydrogen, we've got an interesting guest lined up for, I think it's at 11 o'clock. I mentioned the story the other day. Oh, before we move away to power and uh, involvement of the grid. It'd still be nice to know exactly not only what's going on with that one generating unit at Muskrat Falls, but now there's a story coming from the province of Nova Scotia. With our inability to deliver all the power required based on the deal to build the Maritime Link at $1.5 billion on schedule, on budget, we haven't delivered enough of the power. The government in Nova Scotia is bailing out the utility to the tune of about $117 million to try to keep the rates low as opposed to what it was looking like a potential for a 7% increase. So what does that mean regarding our contractual obligation with the mayor Nova Scotia Power if we're not living up to it? And of course, we all know that the schedule has been obliterated in the completion of Muskrat Falls. People will tell us that it is, for all intents and purposes, completed. But there hasn't even been a finalization of the so-called $5.2 billion rate mitigation plan. That's not been concluded in full. We don't know the status of the generating units. We don't exactly know the status uh, at Soldier's Pond. We know that there has not been the final 900 megawatt test completed regarding the software issues on the Labrador Island link. But what are the implications, financially speaking, because of the province of Nova Scotia not getting the power that we owe them and consequently what that means for their rate payers, and whether or not there's going to be an effort in the province of Nova Scotia to come after us to help backfill some of the monies that will be lost, whether by Amera, Nova Scotia Power, or the government of Nova Scotia. So there's some pretty massive questions looming on that front. And back to the hydrogen. So we've got a, a conversation lined up with a fellow named uh, Denny Briere. He's a petrophysicist and vice president of Calgary-based Chapman Hydrogen and Petroleum Engineering. This was a story we talked about, uh, maybe it was last week, about the fact that, you know, we'll talk about gray hydrogen, which is generated by using things like uh, fossil fuels, green hydrogen using uh, renewables like solar or wind, and then white hydrogen or natural hydrogen. So this gentleman, Mr. Briere, was involved in the first natural, natural hydrogen find in Mali, which still remains the only producing field of natural, natural hydrogen in the world. Now they're taking their search into the Canadian Shield in Ontario this summer. So there's a lot of interesting conversation and insight, I would imagine, into the world of hydrogen and what it means if indeed there are massive finds of this white or natural, natural hydrogen found. Because they talk about supply, which could last for hundreds of years, hasn't been conclusively identified these massive finds, but I'm looking forward to speaking with Mr. Briere later in the show this morning. And if you're interested in talking about that, you know what to do. Oh, there's lots of stuff that I wanted to get to, and maybe I'll save some of them for later on in the program. But we do indeed now, this morning, have the conversation that we've been trying to organize for the number of days with the Minister of Health and Community Services, uh, Tom Osborne, and the Vice President of Operations at NL Health Services, Mr. Diamond, is unavailable. We, we do have a Senior Vice President coming, though, to talk about operations. And last one. Fred Hutton has been elected to be the next MHA for Conception Bay East, Bell Island, of course, the Liberal candidate. Not a bad voter turnout. Apparently some 45% of registered voters uh, cast a ballot in the advance polls and on voting day. So Mr. Hutton, see here, he got 2,600... 
Uh, wait, no, one second. So he eclipsed uh, Tina Neri, who was the PC candidate. He had 2603. She had 2152. And down the line, Kim Churchill had about 14.9% of the votes with 846. Daryl Harding, the independent, 70 votes for 1.2% of the final vote. And, of course, this was uh, congratulations to Fred and congratulations to everyone who takes a swing at being an elected official. Not easy to campaign and certainly daunting to put your hat in the ring and or to be involved as the elected member. But congratulations to Fred Hutton. You know, of course, the obvious will be stated. And yes, it was a Tory stronghold for some 20 years, and Miss Neri came up short. So I think it will be a stretch to say that this is a, you know, a vote of confidence in Andrew Fury as the premier and or a spot against the newly elected leader of the PCs being Tony Wakeham. I think, you know, in many circumstances here, and you can think of uh, whatever you like about the outcome, there's certainly a lot to be said inside the world of politics for name recognition. And, of course, Fred Hutton, longtime journalist and senior advisor to the premier, People know who Fred Hutton is. Does that play a role? Sure. Is it also associated with what people think of Fred as a person and a potential politician? Of course. But I think it's a real stretch to say it's an endorsement of the liberals or a slight against the Tories. Of course, that would be the political rhetoric associated with it. But overall, congratulations to all hands, and especially for Mr. Hutton. No idea whether or not there's going to be another by-election call for uh, Fortune Cape Friels, of course, with the passing of Derek Bragg. That seat is now also vacant. The Premier says he hasn't really thought about it as of yet. And with some of the promises that Mr. Hutton had made on the campaign trail, including a shore manager regarding the Bell Island Ferry Services, apparently the government says that they're going to have that advertisement to fill that job very soon. And then we can get into all the things about, you know, health services on Bell Island, a school, high school in paradise, when, of course, a lot of these things have been promised, which really doesn't explain why they weren't followed through on already by the current Liberal government, as opposed to building a high school in paradise and the choice to build one down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. So there's a lot to it. But congratulations to Fred on his victory. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Pula. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, yes, I just want to talk about the uh, Elkis mayor in Newfoundland. Okay. My husband was admitted to the hospital on Sunday night. Uh, he, drove, he had to be taken by ambulance from here in the sea to Bayburt, where he had a virtual conversation with a doctor who transferred him to Grand Falls, and he was in Grand Falls uh, around 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. Monday morning. Uh, about 5 o'clock uh, Monday evening, he was put in a room where he was admitted to the hospital. Uh, I went to visit him yesterday, and uh, he has a very, very serious problem, which I won't discuss here, but uh, a very serious problem. And uh, he was told by his doctor yesterday that uh, he's only allowed to stay in the hospital for three days. If they can't get him to tra transfer to St. John's to get surgery that he so desperately needs in order to live, uh, he's going to be let out on Friday because they can only keep him in for three days because they need the bed. Uh, so that means that my husband is going to be sent home with me here in Lithuania, where we don't have any medical uh, people at all except a couple of paramedics, with a 
mysterious problem that can that he can die from, and they're going to send him home with me, and I can't do anything about it. And they're going to and meanwhile, they can take him to St. John's. At least they can take him to St. John's, where he'll be in a hospital. But no, they're going to send him home. So I'm just throwing this out to see what other people would think about that because I'm 80 years old. He's 86 years old. Uh, if he comes home with this problem and there is something that can happen that will be fatal, he's already been told that. And um, so what am I supposed to do? Can you just, just throw it out for other people it's it's a major league question and I'm not sure what you can or could do about this I just want to be clear and understand the story Beulah so he's been told that he has a potentially fatal illness that requires a surgery but unless he's able to get a bed in St. John's over the course of three days if that does not happen he's simply going to be sent home so the concern is whether or not they can find him a bed in St. John's Yes, he's supposed to have surgery. He 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 desperately needs to have surgery in order to survive. Desperately needs to have surgery in order to survive. Meanwhile, his doctor, God love his heart, is working overtime to try to get him in St. John's. But he was told yesterday that if he can't get him to St. John's, Within the next three days, he will have to be dismissed from the hospital and he'll have to come home. Beulah, so obviously the question would be asked, you know, whether or not there's going to be a bed in St. John's is one thing, but what three days have to do with it, the timeline he's been given to leave the bed that he's currently lying in? Why is, that, why is three days the number? Do you know? I uh, no idea. All I know is that he was told that if he's not, if he doesn't get the, if he doesn't get the operation, by, or get someone to do the surgery, or by Friday, that he will be released from the hospital in Grand Falls and sent home because they they need the bed because the emergency room downstairs is full of people waiting to be admitted to the hospital now. I I understand there's other people who are sick. Yes, I God bless them. I I wouldn't want anything to happen to anybody. But my husband is 86 years old, and he desperately needs surgery in order to survive. Actually, he has been asked by his doctor, "If you should die, do you want to be resuscitated?" Boy, oh boy. So that's how sick he is. He's really sick. When he was taken out of here on set Sunday night, I didn't think he was going to make it then. But the, the doctor who did the virtual in Bayport sent him to grandpa's because she said he had a real bad infection. So they've taken care of that, but that's not the big problem. The okay. big problem is that this man, he's 86 years old. I know he's 86 years old. Maybe maybe they think, well, I, I don't know what people are, are thinking today, these days because with the health system the way it is, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking personally, 
Oh, well, maybe you're thinking, oh, well, he's 86 years old. He's lived his life, so, like, it's not important. We'll take someone younger. I don't know, but I do know that his doctor is a good doctor, and he's desperately working uh, to try and get him in St. John's. He told him, he said, I will work day and night to try to get you in St. John's, but, but if I can't, we're going to have to release you from the hospital. You're going to have to go home. Now, if my husband comes home, we live in our own home. I'm 80. He's 86. If something should happen to him in the middle of the night, I have to sit here and watch him probably die uh, because I can't help him. I can't. I don't know anything about bringing him back or. And sometimes, uh, sometimes our, our sometimes our ambulance is gone to favorite or grandfather's with somebody else, and we have to wait for an ambulance to come from Springfield, maybe. So, what happens during that period of time? It's a devastating story. I wish I could say, well, here's what I would do, but. The unfortunate reality of not being able to possibly get a bed in the city of St. John's, but this all sounds like a, such a dire situation and an emergency surgery required. And if we can't attend to folks who have a potentially fatal issue and possibly send them home as an 86-year-old man <clears throat> with a wife in her 80s who has no no knowledge of how to handle or treat or care for her husband, it's a terrible story. I really wish there was something I could say or somewhere I could point you. You know, we do have an opportunity to speak with a couple of healthcare officials this morning, but of course, I can tell you what they're going to say is individual cases, they don't know enough to comment on it, which is not helping you, certainly not helping your husband. Exactly. So, I oh, just boy. want to throw it out to just okay. people to comment and think you know, maybe maybe somebody has an idea of what to do. Maybe our politicians or uh, members or somebody can step in and, you know, right, push this situation. If we get any reaction that could be of any assistance whatsoever... I'll be happy to pass it on, Beulah. Either myself or David will call you back. I really don't know what to say because when we have all of these doctor shortages and wait times and people's surgeries being postponed and canceled repeatedly, the stress that that causes, and quite likely, in some circumstances, may be the person's demise because they weren't able to get the health care they needed in a timely fashion. I'm really sorry to hear this, Beulah. I hope you are doing okay yourself. I'm sure you're stressed out and as worried as could possibly be. And the same thing goes for your husband. Uh, pass along my best wishes. And please let me know whether or not that bed opens up in St. John's and he gets the, sur I, the surgery he needs. Just let me know when you can. I certainly will. Thank you very much. I wish you well. Bye-bye. Bye, Beulah. I mean, those, we've been hearing stories like that for quite a long time. And, of course, many of these healthcare concerns were exasperated by policies that were enacted to attempt to deal with the pandemic. Now, it never really came to pass that the amount of hospital beds that people thought might be used for uh, COVID patients, it never really happened, as far as I can tell. And so, consequently, what have we seen? You know, huge backlogs of surgery. We've seen updated numbers, and some of them are going in the wrong direction. Say, for instance, people needing uh, heart surgery. You know, thankfully, there's been another cardiac surgeon uh, hired to be part of the team here in the city of St. John's. There is a relationship with uh, a university hospital in Ottawa, but the wait time issues and the backlog numbers 
are not being cleared up the way people thought they might be by now. And just imagine, you know, just think about some of the bed concerns. When we've had delays in opening long-term care facilities in Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, 260-bed units, right? And what happened there? There were people occupying hospital beds who could have and should have been in a long-term care facility. I know there's some work being done on how to discharge patients into different levels of care. That's some of that policy programs being worked on. I don't really know exactly what's happening, but maybe that'll be part of our conversation coming up here after the 10 o'clock hour. And, you know, so... When there's also these staffing shortages, when we talk about a bed not being available, it doesn't necessarily mean that every bed is occupied. Sometimes it's as simple as we don't have the staff to accommodate another patient in a bed that's actually empty, but we don't have staff to accommodate an additional patient on the floor. Fingers crossed that Beulah and her husband get what they need before the so-called three-day time runs out. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Just, of course, sometimes some of these stories are just hard to get out of your mind to move on to another call. They're just so devastating. So is there such a thing, in Beulah's case, where she can simply refuse to have her husband discharged? Say, I'm not taking him home? Like, is that a thing? Because a couple of people via email said, I would just refuse to take him home. So what happens then? Is it incumbent on the hospital to keep him in the bed because the loved one, in this case the wife, has said, we are not willing to take him home or I'm not willing to take him home? I don't know the answer to that question, but if that's something that's an actual enforceable thing, then you can let me know. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? That's about as suppose. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. I want to talk about a uh, murder case in British Columbia. A man was found guilty of first-degree murder in December for uh, sexually assaulting and strangling a 13-year-old girl. The, um, the police obtained uh, DNA samples from the, from the crime scene, uh, semen samples, and this eventually led to the accused being charged and uh, ultimately convicted at trial. He's filing an appeal of his conviction, and he has over two two dozen grounds that he's going to argue. And I'm not going to get into whether the appeal has merit or not, but uh, it's the circumstances surrounding how the police were led to him. Is this the so-called tea-tasting story? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the police um, found this uh, 13-year-old girl in one of the parks in Metro Vancouver. She had been uh, sexually assaulted and, and strangled, and they launched a murder investigation. This was back in, I think, 2017, 27, uh, 2017 or 2018. And um, they obtained a, a DNA profile from, from, the se- from the semen sample. They knew from the semen sample that this was a... Uh, uh, a male uh, from um, either Syria or Iraq, one of the Kurdish communities in that region, based on the DNA profile. So they focused on uh, people in uh, in that community, in Vancouver, metropolitan Vancouver's uh, Kurdish community. Um, they first started off in the investigation by approaching uh, Kurdish males 
uh, identifying themselves as police, telling them they were investigating, uh, you know, a homicide, and asking these people if they would voluntarily provide a DNA sample so they could be excluded from the investigation. Uh, some of those people did uh, provide samples, and those samples were tested, and uh, it didn't it didn't match uh, the sample that was left at the crime scene. Um, another way that the police uh, also uh, conducted that investigation initially was to put uh, Kurdish men under uh, surveillance uh, without their knowledge and uh, collect like cigarette butts, uh, coffee cups and things like that where, um, where someone would smoke a cigarette or, or, or take a drink and then discard the uh, the cigarette butt and the police would come along and and retrieve that and send that uh, to a lab for DNA analysis. Again, the cast-off DNA investigation didn't yield any results either. So they, the investigation was at a dead end. So then the police came up with the idea that they would create a front company, a tea company, and they would set up a, a, a kiosk or whatever in a um, during the Kurdish uh, New Year celebrations in 2018. And they posed as tea marketers, offering people uh, in that community uh, samples of tea to taste. And when the people finished drinking those uh, samples, uh, the police took those cups and sent them to a lab without the knowledge of these people, obviously. So what, they they, they numbered the cups and matched up the number with photographs or something? Uh, they, took the, they also took information, the people's names and addresses oh, okay. and other personal information, right? So... Uh, that that, that uh, investigation led to uh, the brother of the accused. He was one of the people who took part in this tea tasting sampling um, thing, and uh, the DNA profile from the brother uh, eventually led to to the accused. Obviously, since they share uh, their DNA, right? So the 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 argument is is that the police did this uh, without the fully informed consent, obviously. Of the people who participated in this in this so-called contest or or sampling or whatever you want to call it, uh, at no time were they informed that uh, this was a police investigation, that the samples, you know, the DNA from the saliva would be would be seized by the police and and compared to a crime scene. And the BC Civil Liberties Association calls this absolutely shocking that the police would do that. And now a person who is absolutely guilty may indeed go free based on the reckless procedures uh, entertained by the police in British Columbia. It's terrible stuff. Uh, I gave this story a very quick glance, so I don't know much of the ins and the outs. But there's also one of his lawyers says that there was discrimination involved because the Kurdish community was identified. But in the world of DNA, some of the markers are distinctly representative of ethnic minorities or, or majorities. So they can boil it down to whether or not someone might be of Kurdish uh, heritage, so I don't really quite get that argument or what that has to do with the price of tea in China, but we'll see what becomes of these types of stings. You know, sometimes we get some of our information about the legal system by watching TV, right? So you'll have this classical shtick where the detectives are in the box, the interrogation room with the suspect, and they offer he or she a pop or a glass of water, and when they leave, they take that cup and they test it for DNA to proceed through the one-hour investigation and conviction of a murderer on law and order. Is that stuff even considered informed consent? 
No, I don't think. I don't think so either. So, no. you know, once again, I think much of our knowledge for most of us, and I don't include myself in that uh, that batch, maybe just maybe we get some of our base understanding uh, on TV dramas versus actual uh, courtroom realities. But anyway, it's an interesting case. Yeah, you had, you know, the Charter, Section 8 of the Charter uh, provides that everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. And that's a constitutional right in this country that we all have. And it applies to the state or agents of the state uh, seizing um, um, personal belongings and, and obviously in this case, the most intimate, detailed knowledge of you as a, as a human being, your genetic profile. Yeah. And when the police do that without a warrant, that raises the pr- a presumption in the criminal law called the um, a presumption of unreasonableness. So where the police sees a sample without a warrant, it automatically attracts sex, sex and age scrutiny. And there are criteria where if the police don't have a warrant and they seize a sample, like, like a breath sample for a roadside breath test, it has to, you know, uh, that's deemed to be legal because it's been uh, uh, set out in statute, in law, that the police have this authority and uh, there has to be reasonableness and the method to, uh, to get the sample has to also be reasonable and there's a whole bunch of other criteria. But, but that's been deemed legal. You know, because it's according to the law. And cast-off samples, where people discard a cigarette butt and the police are following them. And, and when, you, when you, you know, put your trash out to the garbage or you throw away a cigarette butt when you're finished with smoking the cigarette, the DNA on that can become the property of the, or the, the police can seize that without a warrant. The Supreme Court of Canada has expressly stated in the Patrick decision that, um, you know, discarded trash and things like that. The police are free to go through your garbage like anybody else. Once you put it to the curb, you have relinquished any privacy interest you have in that, in those items. But this is not what's going on in this case. This is the police who are stymied by their investigation. They ask people uh, to voluntarily provide DNA samples, uh, knowing that it was, you know, uh, to give fully informed consent initially. And some people did that, and they gave up their their right to to, um, privacy for that, you know, but it was based on fully informed consent. And the second uh, way they did it, as I just mentioned, was cast off DNA. Again, you've you've given up privacy uh, rights to that once you discard that item. But this is not what happened here. They got stymied, and they decided to um, create a front, uh, you know, a ruse. Understood. In an undercover com- uh, uh, undercover investigation. And they just trolled a, a community. So when the lawyer says it was a courage community, that came out from the DNA. But they're not just trolling the courage community. They're, they're casting a wide net over that entire community. They're not focused on one specific individual, right? Yeah, yeah, understood. It's uh, we'll see where this goes on appeal, but it's disheartening, and in fact, it's quite frustrating to know that how many cases where someone has been found guilty and is guilty, but the conviction is thrown out because of the handling of evidence and/or the processes utilized by law enforcement. You know, they know better. They have the training. They should have the the leadership that they bounce the. Here's what we're uh, thinking about doing. People know different and know better, and yet these cases happen just far too frequently, and guilty people walk free because of bad behavior, reckless evidence handling, and or the compilation of evidence by law enforcement. It's just maddening, absolutely maddening. Uh, Colin, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Cheers, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right. Uh, let's stay right on track with the break times on queue. So Rob's here to talk about community mailboxes. His concern, we'll find out. Ten cities also in the queue. And Stu wants to talk about iron levels in the body. Okay, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Stu. You're on the air. Good morning. <clears throat> morning, Patty. How are you? 
Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad, sir. A uh, little tired, but uh, that, that comes with uh, late night hours, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, just getting back to, I, I guess I, I probably sent you enough information now. There's, uh, you have a, a pretty good picture uh, of what what I was talking what I was talking about. Uh, and and one report here says that it's about one it affecting about one in t- uh, 250 individuals with this. Uh, with this iron condition, uh, too much iron, that's what it is. Uh, it's called hemochromatosis. And on the other side would be anemia. Uh, on the other side would be anemia, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I think the anemic uh, people probably, I'm not sure what the ratio is, but anyway. So, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh like I've never heard anybody talk about a government or anybody, or or, or have I seen anything, uh, you know, that came from the government that if anybody has this condition, uh, and even if they're aware of it, uh, we have no way of knowing. Uh, so I'm hoping that you can invite uh, the Minister of Health to come on the program and talk about it and. Uh, because again, it is a very serious condition, a deadly condition. Uh, it creates so many different uh, symptoms that mimics, uh, well, diabetes uh, uh, is, is one, uh, uh, it, it can cause that. Uh, you know, heart conditions, uh, I think, but the first thing it generally attacks is your liver. And you could be treated for uh, something with your liver. And, and again, uh, if you haven't been screened for this condition, the doctor would probably treat you just for uh, these symptoms. So, uh, which is kind of uh, uh, not a good thing to be happening. So, uh, if we could do that, that would be great. Uh, like I said, invite uh, invite the health minister over and see what they know and and. Uh, Ask them what they plan to do about it, uh, because uh, if anybody in Newfoundland that has Northern European ancestry, and, and I think it covers quite a few places in Northern Europe, uh, Norway places, you know, Sweden, uh, Iceland too, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, so let's let's uh, make them aware, and 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 I think it should be a public announcement, probably. Uh, uh, once it gets sorted out, uh, you know, to, to to have it as a public service announcement that uh, that you know everybody should be tested. It's a simple test uh, to check for iron and ferritin levels, and uh, we we'll go from there. Here, let me bounce this off you, Stu. So I get it. You know, ask the minister. What do you think about my idea to go to the chief of hematology? Because I think it's the hematologist that I probably need to have this type of conversation with because they'll have the medical background and the understanding of the availability of tests and what they're looking for, what people should be mindful of, those types of things, as opposed to the minister. And this is not a slight against one politician or another necessarily, but I don't anticipate... Minister Osborne knows much, if anything, about these very specific issues regarding testing for iron levels, whether it be for hemochromatosis and or for people who are anemic. So what do you think of that? Why don't I go right to the source, hematologist? That is an excellent idea. Thank you for that. Yes. Uh, I'm looking at the report here that I got here from the lab when I got the confirmation. Uh, yeah, uh, and that that would be a great place to start, and and I'm sure then the minister will be made aware of it. Uh, uh, you know, if uh, depending on what the uh, lab thinks, but I, uh, I'm hoping and I'm sure the lab would be, uh, you know, uh, willing to say that yes, you know, this is a serious thing, 
uh, that uh, people should be tested for it because giving our uh, background and heritage and all this stuff. Yeah, so that would be uh, that would be a great place to start, Patty. So talk about some of the implications if and when you are diagnosed and how you were diagnosed with this hemochromatosis. Uh, well, for a couple of years, my doctor couldn't figure out uh, why my liver would be stressed out, uh, high enzymes, I think is what he, what he uh, uh, referred to it as. And probably I'd go back and six to eight weeks later, uh, my liver would, be, uh, liver would be normal. And, okay, so third time, fourth time around, uh, he said, I got to check for something else. He said, this is absolutely uh, unusual. So when he did send me for the test for the iron to see where the levels were, uh, it was over 1,300, and his words were that. He said, well, yours is the highest that I've ever seen in my career uh, so far, you know. So so anyway, uh, uh, the first thing he did was send me for it was called a phlebotomy. That's to drain off the blood. Uh, 500 milliliters is, is first, you know. So, so we did that in a few quick su- successions to get my levels down. And I think uh, I think normal levels for a man is around uh, 50 to 300 maximum levels that should show up in, in a ferret and iron test. And that's how we discovered it. And I got, like I said, I got diagnosed about uh, a little over six months ago, confirmed by the lab that uh, I did indeed have the classic. Uh, the classic uh, is called uh, it's, it's C2 uh, C2A2Y. That's uh, that's a, that's a designation of it. A uh, couple letters and numbers there. Yeah, C2A2Y. That's, that's a positive, of course. And there's also another group that I'm in touch with, and I was trying to. Uh, get to talk to the people at the lab to get them to put down uh, on their forms uh, the Canadian Hemochromatosis Society because they are a wealth of information. Uh, they have a lot of experts there. Uh, you know, they're always discovering new things, and they put these uh, they put these emails out, send out people emails like that. You know, so that's another place uh, too that that uh, hopefully if if, if you uh, talk to uh, anybody from the lab. Uh, ask them maybe if they're aware of the Hemochromatosis Society of Canada. And, uh, you know, we, we'll see what the responses are. Stu, once you were diagnosed, then what? So what uh, What sort of treatment are you getting? Is it simply a pharmaceutical? Uh, yeah, the only treatment... Well, there is something you can get, I think, uh, 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 you know, through the pharmaceuticals, but it's not recommended, and I certainly wouldn't recommend it. But my only uh, uh, alternative or only only treatment I can get is to actually to drain off the blood to, uh, uh, to, to, to reduce it down that way. And uh, now there's, when it comes to foods, uh, I was uh, initially told I shouldn't be eating meat because there's two kinds of iron. Uh, uh, one is like regular iron, you're fine in just about everything. And the other one is found in red meats, it's called heme iron. But my research has led me down to, and being an iron worker, I certainly know what iron and steel is. <laughs> it's actually the same thing your car is made out of, what's in our bodies. Uh, that I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced anyway that from my research that uh, anything that contains iron, veggies, whatever you want to eat, uh, you know, your body will absorb it. And when you have this defective gene, your body absorbs more of it. Uh, 
You can take calcium. That slows down the absorption. Uh, but I usually, eat, if I'm going to have some meat, I usually eat an egg, and an egg has a compound into it. Just boil an egg. That's a compound in it that can slow down the absorption. So other than that, that's basically all you can do. Uh, you know, regular regular blood blood work to see. Uh, you know, if the iron level is increasing, and they set up for uh, for a phlebotomy to drain off some uh, blood. And, and get it down to uh, safe levels. So that's basically where I'm at with everything okay. right now. I appreciate the info. And, of course, many of the foods, very normal foods that most of us will eat, are very rich in iron, you know, all the way from nuts and seeds and a bunch of legumes, beans, chickpeas, lentils, dark uh, the leafy green vegetables are high in iron. So it's everywhere. Dried fruit, I think, once again. Right. Uh, maybe a lot of breakfast cereals and breads have a lot of iron in yep. it. So it's everywhere. You look in the grocery store. Uh, Stu, I appreciate the time. I will indeed try to follow up with someone in the world of hematology to talk about this from a medical perspective, what people should be considering, and how frequently these tests are conducted. I'll see what I can find out, and I'll have him on the show, or he or she on the show, as soon as possible. Absolutely, Patty, and I'll call you probably in a week or so. Let's talk about uh, blood work collection and and why we need to engage uh, uh, the uh, Red Cross and and the government into getting some uh, some more places set up so we can donate blood because that helps that that would certainly help people that's got too much iron and you know so on, right? well we can talk about that next time I appreciate the time Stu. Uh, thank you very much, Pat, for taking my call. My pleasure. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So we can follow up with both entities, Canadian Blood Services and the someone in the world of hematology. Let's go to line four. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, how about you? Happy hump day. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> Anyways, no, I want to talk about, uh, I, there was a um, Canada Post there came out and said, uh, I don't know if it was Monday or Friday, but they were saying, you know, you got to make sure you keep your, your paths cleaned and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of home delivery anymore. So it's all these big mailboxes that you, everybody's got to drive to now and spend more money on and stuff like that. And they're just up in their charges, but they don't look after them. The, the, the snow, like the, the shelters that they have around some of them, um, they're not shoveled, there's no salt, and everybody trying to get out and get into these places, you know, it's congested at times, you know, because everybody's coming home at night and they're going to check their mail, but there's no salt, there's no nothing there, and they're telling, you know, everybody else to make sure they're cleared out, but they're not clearing it out. They got no contracts, there's nobody shoveling their areas or putting salt down where nobody's going to slip and fall. You know, interesting, the community mailbox in my neighborhood is right at the bottom of the street. It hasn't been a big deal for me, and it's always nice and clear and salted. No problems with access at all. But on the other hand, there is one, one of my pals who I go visit quite frequently. His community mailbox is always up to its neck in snow, and it looks like a devil of a time for people to get out. So I don't know if there's different contractors that are hired by Canada Post. Some do a really good job, some not so much. So it seems to be a big difference out there. Mine, best kind. My buddies, terrible. Yeah, I'm out in CBS here, and uh, I I know, you know, because I do a little bit of running around and stuff like that, and I look at them, and, you know, there's a dozen of them that I can tell you that have not been touched, and we got this little bit of snow here there, and it blew in under the things because the, the if you have a guard around it, um, it's only three inches up from the ground, so the wind just blows the snow in, 
and there's no salt, there's no clearing, there's no nothing. So I think Canada Post should, um, you know, really take take up and, and, and think about what they're saying. Fair enough, uh, because it's incumbent on them. I mean, we pay a pretty hefty fee to engage Canada Post. So yeah. to make it easier, when they took away home delivery, of course, people were furious. And many people were. For me, it didn't make a big deal. But for folks who are maybe elderly or have mobility issues, the inability to reach out the door and in your mailbox to get your mail has been frustrating. I guess I'm just getting used to it now because it's been our reality for a long time. But if you can't get to the box, it becomes even more frustrating, obviously. Uh, I appreciate the, the thoughts this morning, Rob. Thanks for the call. Okay, take care. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, before we get to the news, I want to say a big happy birthday to our friend Darren Freak. He's been very helpful to the program for people who were calling on certain issues. So apparently he's the big 5-0 today. Generally, we reserve the happy birthdays for folks much older than Darren, but he's been very kind to the show. So happy birthday, Darren Freak. Thanks for tuning in and for all your help. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, and Ron Johnson, who's the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for the Eastern Zone for NL Health. So those two gentlemen right after this and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Join us on lines one and two is the Minister of Health Community Services, that's Tom Osborne, and the NL Services, Health Services, VP and Chief Operating Officer for the Eastern Urban Zone, that's Ron Johnson. Good morning to you both here on the air. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, uh, Patty. I know you had some questions uh, when we spoke last week, um, and I know uh, Ron is, uh, I'm at the Confederation Building, I think Ron is at his office at the, uh, uh, the Provincial Health Authority. Ron? Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you, Ron. Let's start with you. Ron Johnson, who is the Compass Group, and what do they do for our the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services? Uh, the Compass Group uh, is, our, is our company that manages our food services, our housekeeping, and our laundry services and portering in the uh, eastern zones of the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. What's the value of their contract? Uh, the value of their management contract is around uh, 800k, where they where they manage these services. Uh, all the employees are uh, they work and are employees of Newfoundland Labrador Health Services. What the contract is is to manage these services, and it's valued. The management portion is valued at about 800,000. So we hear from one gentleman in particular, who I'm sure you're both familiar with, about the value of the contract, and he estimates it's much more in the millions versus 800,000 dollars. Where might that confusion lie? I'm not sure about that. Uh, I mean, maybe he's uh, confusing uh, the staff component of the contract, which are managed by Compass, but that's not a part of the contract. So what the actual contract itself, what we pay them to manage, is around 800 k Is there the ability for members of the media and or individual citizens to get a look at the contract? I would think that there's a way to, uh, to through access to information, to get at those contracts, uh, for sure. Do we have any concerns with a multinational company that has a reputation in certain corners for some of the way they've handled their business? I mean, they've settled out of court, for instance, in the European Union, about $40 million out of court. The accusation was attempting to bribe an official. There was other subsidies, subsidiaries, like Chartwells, forced to pay $1,800 million, pardon me, $18 million to New York State, $19.4 million to Washington. So there's a long list of some questionable behavior and corporate responsibility on behalf of Compass and some of their subsidiaries. What, could, what level of concern do you have when you hear those stories? 
Well, obviously it's concerning, but in our case, uh, we went out for a competitive uh, RFP to acquire this service uh, and did a lot of due diligence around that. And we've had the service and Compass Group in place for quite a few years. Uh, and we have never experienced any of those issues. So this was as a result of an RFP. Can you remember off the top of your head how many respondents you had to that re request for proposals? I do. Actually, I was involved in that RFP myself. I think we had four responses. We did it in two stages. We did a, what we call a request for qualification to qualify uh, appropriate suppliers. We did that at the first stage, and then we did an RFP to those qualified suppliers. One would expect that uh, in that in this space, there's there's a number of companies in this space, and, and all the major companies bid on this contract and were evaluated accordingly. And Compass came out winning the contract quantitatively and qualitatively. What's the length of the contract? How many years left do we have uh, range with Compass? The contract is for 10 years, so I think we're probably three years in. So it's probably seven years left, I'd say six or seven years left. There will always be battles and union gripes and collective bargaining regarding the rate of pay, some benefits and what have you. But in Britain, for instance, and this you know, go, boils back to things like work-life balance and the workplace uh, respect level and what have you. So they've been deemed Britain's most heartless employer, where they were talking about outsourced cleaners and catering staff at the Ministry of Defence face false redundancy and fire and rehire manoeuvre. So if Compass has acted like that in other jurisdictions, what's the concern that both of you would have about some of that workplace respect issue that seems to be a problem that follows Compass and some of their subsidiaries around? No, Patty. We'd be very, very concerned about that, but we're not experiencing any of those issues. Uh, like I said, Compass has been in play, uh, especially in St. John's, in, in, the, uh, in the tertiary system for, I'd say, 20 years or more. Uh, we have never experienced any of these issues. And, and anecdotally, I mean, the engagement scores of employees they manage are, are probably higher than the ones we manage ourselves. So we're not experiencing any of those issues, not at all. Minister Osborne, let's bring you in here. You, any thoughts that you'd like to offer about things like the Compass Group and some of the concerns we just spoke to Mr. Johnson about? I mean, the, the public procurement process, uh, Patty, uh, in the province is rigorous. Um, the when we go through a public procurement process, um, there are uh, criteria that have to be followed. Uh, these things are always uh, open to be overseen by uh, individuals like the Auditor General, for example. So it has to be a rigorous uh, process that they go through. Uh, the individuals that are awarded through a public tender uh, you know, uh, generally there are fairness advisors and others that oversee these things. So they follow, uh, you know, a, a very stringent set of uh, criteria before the awarding of a tender. Um, if there are concerns, and, and, you know, I just heard uh, Mr. Johnson say that they haven't experienced those concerns locally that they might have experienced in other jurisdictions. But if any concerns arise, um, you know, the, the Provincial Health Authority, uh, being the, the holders of that contract, will deal directly with the proponent, uh, just as any, uh, whether it's a government contract and a, and a government proponent or a health authority uh, a contract and, and a proponent, uh, if issues arise regarding human resources or uh, or other issues, those uh, uh, companies have to live up to the intent of the contract. Sometimes in the world of procurement, you know, you talk about the lowest bid that checks all the boxes might get the business. doesn't always mean we bring in the right uh, partners and or companies to navigate. Mr. Johnson, before we get back to you, sir, is it possible to take us off hands-free and pick up the receiver so we can hear you more clearly? 
certainly. Well, terrific. Minister, I'll stick with you. Once again, when we talk about procurement for private operators to be part of the healthcare system, phone med has been a concern for many, including the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association. For instance, you know, we pay them exorbitant amount of money, and they take a lot of calls on the 811 service, but oftentimes the referral is simply to go see your family doctor if you're lucky enough to have one or to make a visit to the emergency room. Was there not any consideration given to the fact that if we're going to pay the amount of money we paid to 811, and yet all they might do sometimes is refer you to a doctor, and so for an in-person visit for a family doctor here, then it's $37 for routine in-person and $47 for a virtual appointment, which is capped at 40 a day. We'll get to that, but was there any thought and possibility to carve out a simple call that ends up in a referral. So basically, we're paying twice for the same service. So, you know, the, the number of individuals that contact 811 um, is quite high. The number of referrals that they then send to an emergency department or, or other healthcare practitioner uh, is, you know, a fraction of that. Uh, there are nurse practitioners uh, as part of 811. Those nurse practitioners are able to prescribe. So, you know, through COVID especially, uh, we learned that 811 was an absolutely vital service. Um, anytime you have uh, somebody who doesn't have access to primary care, a nurse practitioner can pr- uh, prescribe, they can uh, assess um, if, uh, you know, uh, if there's a doubt uh, about the, uh, the the individual or symptoms, uh, they do refer to to the emergency department. But the number of individuals that are able to access the service, uh, whether it is a nurse practitioner or a registered nurse, um, you know, whether it is uh, you know dietary or mental health and addictions. Uh, there's a broad spectrum of services provided through 811, and it does reduce a significant flow to our emergency departments because that service is available. Yeah, I don't think anyone thinks that there's not a, a critical or a vital service. It's about the rate of pay. So $82 per call in the first year, uh, rising to $92 per call in the final year compared to the money afforded to uh, family doctors represented by the NLMA. So that's one thing. The expected call volume in and around 72,000 calls per year. You say there's only a fraction that end up in a referral. Do we have that number? Um, I don't I don't have that number, but I you know I do know from speaking to officials in the department uh, that the vast majority of calls that go to 811 do not get referred into emergency. Uh, there are uh, calls that get referred to emergency, but you know whether it's somebody looking to have a prescription renewed or have a prescription filled, uh, those things never have to go to emergency. The nurse practitioner can deal with those things online, for example. Um, you know, in terms of of contract, uh, you know, I I know I, I think the phone med contract was. Uh, is now two or three years old. Um, I wasn't here when the contract was first lit, but I do understand. I think PhoneMed were the only uh, proponent to that contract. Um, we know that the service is absolutely vital. Uh, they provide a, a very important and a significant service uh, to the people of the province where people have access to uh, health professionals 
um, whether it's mental health and addictions or, or a registered nurse or nurse practitioner from the comfort of their home without having to leave their home. Yes, there is a percentage that uh, get referred to the emergency department, but, you know, the, the service is vital. Um, you know, we will no doubt need that service in the future, uh, whether uh, it is one proponent or, or multiple proponents bid on this in the future. We have learned that the service that is provided uh, is an essential service to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, I think it's a 2022 contract with a, a five-year contract in place. I know Dave is uh, giving you the heads up that we're probably going to need to take a break for our scheduled commercial break, and then we'll come back and revisit this conversation. Is that okay with you both? Absolutely. Yeah, good for me. Let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. We rejoin our conversation with Minister Osborne and Vice President Ron Johnson for the Eastern Urban Zone. Uh, I'll leave this up to both of you. We'll start with you, Minister. Inside the world of the money, the amount of money we spend on healthcare, and of course, about $4 billion and a $9 billion budget, so significant monies. The travel nurse conversation is not only about money, but it's also about respect in the workplace and the equity or equality that is not the experience of registered nurses working in the public system. In New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and the province of Quebec, they committed to phasing it out in full. So if we did that in this province, inevitably the registered nurses working as private travel agency nurses would likely come back to the public fold, but it takes what people might refer to as political fortitude to stand up for public health versus the expansion of private services in the province. Can this government commit to doing exactly what they've done elsewhere to protect the public and maybe restore some of that respect and the workplace that is not working the way it's intended to? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a discussion we've had with uh, our uh, ministerial counterparts at the federal and, and provincial levels at meetings. Uh, you know, this is something that we absolutely need to work towards uh, reduction of travel uh, or agency nursing. Um, there is a, a morale issue when you have uh, two individuals working side by side and, and uh, one individual getting paid at, at a different rate. So, you know, we see from the morale issue we see from uh, a retention uh, issue with the the nurses that have stayed permanent and have continued to uh, to work within the public system here uh, so we are focused on this uh, I have had uh, discussions with the uh, the uh, other ministers, uh, ministers that have put measures in place. Uh, I have raised this and been a leader at the table uh, at the FPT meetings in terms of how we look at reduction uh, of uh, reliance on, on agency nursing. So this is something uh, we've, unfortunately right now we need uh, agency nursing because we don't have enough registered nurses in the system. Um, we are seeing a reduction in the number of vacancies when you look at uh, vacancies from uh, October of 22 to vacancies of October of 23. They're, they're measured every uh, in October and again in April. So we saw a slight reduction in April, but uh, only a handful. We saw a larger reduction in the number of vacancies in October. So recruitment uh, is paying off. Um, we are starting to see the retention side of it as well. Uh, the collective agreement with the registered nurses union uh, has uh, helped in that regard. Uh, it you know is more reflective 
paying nurses, uh, you know, uh, for the valuable services that they do. And, and that collective agreement was reached between government and the RNU. And we had the nursing think tank looking at some of the systemic issues. And we continue working on addressing uh, some of the, the challenges and, and the systemic issues, which will help with retention. The challenge is without every province, um, you know, having a, a drop dead date for agency nurses. If if Newfoundland and Labrador stopped taking in agency nurses today, uh, we would have, um, uh, you know, we'd have a deficit uh, certainly of nursing staff in the province, um, and uh, we would have nurses here going to be agency nurses elsewhere without having. Uh, the the benefit of having the inflow of that as well. Um, I've called it in the past a necessary evil, and that's exactly what it is. We absolutely need it. it it's vital uh, while we have a shortage of registered nurses, but it is something that I'm anxious and, and looking forward to seeing a reduction on the reliance. So the thought is that if we simply said we are no longer going to utilize your services, that people would uproot their families and leave the province simply because they wouldn't come back to the public fault? I uh, know what what I'm I'm uh, trying to say, and, and maybe uh, I'll, uh, maybe I wasn't clear enough. But if we said there are uh, nurses in this province that you know because they get a higher rate of pay uh, in lieu of, of benefits, whether it's pension or or other benefits, uh, because they enjoy the travel component of it, uh, seeing different places, you're anchored. Uh, you know, instead of being anchored in one place, you, you know, you you sign a three-month contract and then you go somewhere different for three months. There are some individuals that prefer that lifestyle, um, and we have individuals in this province who have signed on to be travel agent uh, or travel nurses, uh, sorry, agency nurses in other provinces, just as we have nurses from Nova Scotia or Manitoba or Ontario who are agency nurses in this province. Uh, so they, they enjoy the travel component of it, I guess, living somewhere different uh, for a short period of time, getting to experience that. If we said we weren't going to take any travel nurses into the province, um, you know, how do we stop somebody from saying that they're going to sign on in another province uh, or through an agency to work in another province? So we would be creating a larger deficit here by not taking in um, individuals when there are individuals that are free to go elsewhere. Either of you can take this one on. Uh, Why do we not allow nurse practitioners to hang out their own shingle, open up their own shop, and the ability to build MCP? Because we're talking about congested emergency rooms and the wait times. We're talking about collaborative care clinics and kind of moving staff around to accommodate what is a good concept, an excellent concept, but maybe we don't have all the professionals to expand to that 35 uh, intended goal. So why not let the nurse practitioners add to the system, use the the width and the breadth of their expertise and build MCP in their own clinic? So I, you know, I'll, I'll start and, and uh, you know, if Ron has anything to add, he can jump in as well. But my my role and my responsibility is the public system. Um, you know, 
once we have our family care teams up and running and, you know, family care teams are doing exactly what you've just suggested, taking congestion off of emergency departments, providing primary care. Uh, we are looking to staff up our family care teams and have enough of them in the province that any individual who wishes to uh, be associated or, or uh, rostered to a family care team can be. Uh, we also need nurse practitioners in uh, the health authority and working within the health authority. Um, it would be counterintuitive to say that we're going to allow uh, nurse practitioners to bill MCP and set up private practice when we are still recruiting to family care teams as part of the public system, when we are still recruiting to our hospitals as part of the public system, um, you know, my responsibility, uh, as is Mr. Johnson's and, and the health authority, is to staff up the public system, not to create avenues for individuals to work in a private system. I think it's basically about access to a primary care provider based on patients. You know, the nurse practitioner working in their own clinic, hanging out their own shingle, building MCP is still the public system, albeit not the traditional one that we currently have in place. Any thoughts on that issue before we move along, Mr. Johnson? No, I think the minister covered it quite well. I mean, right now here in the province, like our needs are so great in the public system, as he described. I, I don't have anything else to add. Virtual care. And, of course, there are some of the local uh, companies in the virtual care offering, Medicuro being one and some other domestic companies that were not successful when the contract was let to Teladoc. But the question that I have inside of that world is, why is there a cap on 40 visits per day? Because we're always talking about just how busy the clinics are, just how busy the emergency rooms are. Why not try to deal with some of the additional backlog by not having a cap on virtual care appointments if a company and a suite of doctors are willing to take on more than 40 a day? Uh, I mean, we're working with the NLMA now. We're, we're uh, in the process of looking at the uh, the next round of uh, the me memorandum of, of agreement with the NLMA. Uh, that is certainly one of the topics that we're discussing. Uh, but, you know, we need to ensure in-person care. Uh, while virtual care is uh, an essential component of care in, in the, the province, um, we need to ensure that uh, the focus is on in-person care. We need virtual care. It has kept emergency departments open. I know, uh, you know, the mayor of, of Newest Valley, uh, who is also a paramedic, has recently said that, uh, you know, having their site open with the virtual oversight by a physician uh, has actually saved a life just recently. So. Virtual care is important, whether it's keeping an emergency department open or whether it is ensuring that uh, people have access to a physician virtual, uh, virtually for primary care. But again, the focus is on in-person care. And when we have uh, the system set up, um, we do allow up to 40 visits, uh, you know, virtually with family physicians, that, that's significant. Uh, that is a significant number uh, when you look at the number of visits that they can have. So there has to be a balance between uh, virtual care and in-person care. And, uh, you sure. know, those, I guess my question, though, Minister, is why the cap? Because if I'm a doctor and I went in to see 45 patients today to help deal with their own personal issues, that would be a burden or a workload that I'm willing to take on as a healthcare professional. So why an imposed cap 
gap on the amount of care that I can offer per day? Um, we have seen, um, and I know uh, we've had discussions again with the NLMA, and I think they're dealing with that, but um, we have seen uh, some individuals who uh, have only provided virtual care, and I think that number has uh, gone down and, and more uh, people are now seeing uh, people in person. Uh, but there has to be a balance between in-person care and virtual care. Um, and, you know, if there was no cap, the the concern is that uh, we would see, uh, and again, just a very, very small number, but we would see some individuals uh, focus primarily on virtual care uh, when patients are, are looking for and demanding and wanting uh, in-person care. But again, this is a discussion, uh, you know, we are in negotiations with the NLMA, and this is one of the areas that uh, we are in discussion with them on. Mr. Johnson, I wonder what the conversation sounds like amongst you and your colleagues when we talk about further privatization of the system. There's always been private offerings in healthcare, whether it be, say, uh, a dentist, for instance, and for instance, a family doctor for all intents and purposes is a subcontractor, so it's a form of private, but we've seen different provinces talk about cash on the barrel head for hip and knee replacement. We've seen some expansion of private offerings, and there's some complications associated with it. If I'm not in the public system, of course, that's another doctor taken out of the public system. And then folks who can afford it can put the money down to have one procedure or another done. But then these private offerings would also have the ability to turn patients away, maybe not take on the more complex needs, which will be left to the public system. So do we have a ceiling or general thoughts about the trying to encourage the public system to be as strong as it can, as opposed to take on more and more private? It feels feels good for people who can afford it, but for the rest of us with complex needs, we're all in the public system when they take on maybe the easiest cases. So what's that general conversation sound like when we talk about the expansion of private service? Yeah, so, you know, in my role, my role is to manage the public system, not 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 the private system. And, and anything that we've done here, it's always in alignment with the public system. And that'll be that'll continue to be our focus. We're focused on managing the public system, not the private system. But, of course, when we focus on managing the public system, it also has to have some awareness of the private system because the public system can be jeopardized. So I'm wondering what that conversa- conversation sounds like when we know that we see what's happening in other provinces. Some of it's in contravention of the Canada Health Act, but I'm just wondering in the effort to protect and to manage the public system, as you do, what are your thoughts on the expansion of private? Well, obviously, you know, the, pri- the private sector has a role, and, and they're providing different services within the confines of the, of the Canada Health Act. And that's how we've been focused on, on, on working with the private sector is in alignment with, with the Canada Health Act. We haven't been focusing on anything other than that. We're focusing on sort of increasing and maintaining the public system so that we can meet the needs of the residents and the population of the province here. That's our focus. When we talk about mental health and addiction services and the wraparound and services... Could, uh, okay. Just to jump in there uh, as well for a moment. I mean, you know, the Premier has committed, uh, I've committed, that we are not looking at privatizing health care. There are, you know... You're right. I mean, family doctors, uh, you know, some would argue that, that, you know, they're paid publicly, but they're providing a service in their private offices. the reality is we have done very well in in this province uh, with the health authority and as a a government uh, of protecting public health care and you know under the canada health act for example last year uh, we were one of the provinces uh, with no 
uh, concerns raised. There were other provinces that had money clawed back through the the, uh, Canada health uh, transfers uh, because of privatization. Uh, We did not in this province. So, you know, we've maintained the standard of a public health care system in the province. Uh, There is a balance, uh, you know, if you're looking at out-of-hospital procedures, whether it's cataract or other procedures, uh, where we ensure that, uh, you know, while they are out of hospital, they are within the standards of the Canada Health Act. Yeah, that came out of nowhere there a few years ago. Uh, at the transition home, the comfort in, I won't get into price necessarily with either of you gentlemen this morning, but when we talk about the wraparound services for physical health, mental health, and addictions treatments and supports, what does that staffing component look like? Are these new hires or are we simply moving people from other clinics, other hospitals into the transition home? And how many will there be in either of those disciplines? Do we know? Because it's opening in March. I can take that one, Minister, if you want. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so so basically, uh, we're, we're ser- we'll service the building uh, with some of our existing staff, but there will also be some some recruitment of new staff. So that'll include social workers, uh, you know, partial physician, uh, and other types of uh, clinical resources to service that population. Do we know what the numbers might be in either of the disciplines, physical, mental, and addiction treatment? I would say that there's probably uh, one one resource in each discipline. Uh, so one doctor, one social worker. Uh, I can get the exact numbers. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, you know, it looks like we're going to probably add in around five resources to support that population. There's also some concerns about who might be eligible for one of these 140 beds. Are either of you involved in the vetting criteria for who will indeed be eligible? Um, so, you know, the, the site is managed, and I guess the contract is with CSSD. Uh, CSSD will work with the Department of Health uh, and the Provincial Health Authority. Uh, we will work with the Provincial Health Authority. Uh, but there will be a central intake uh, to determine uh, those who need the the, uh, the beds at the site. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a number of areas um, that uh, uh, that focus will be on, whether it is dealing with uh, those that are, are homeless and need the supports or whether uh, it is for other reasons. But, you know, having the, the 140 beds central intake will uh, look at those who uh, need the beds and what services, what wraparound services will be required and will work with uh, the multiple departments and the health authority to ensure that the services that are required at the site are there. Last one, I, I could go all day on this, but inside the world of mental health, you know, the thought in the towards recovery document said, you know, the, ga- the aim or the goal is to spend about 9% of the overall health budget on specifically mental health. Do we have a number of what percentage we're actually spending on that? And in addition to that, you know, we can measure things like wait times for hip replacement. So there's always to uh, gauge and to judge how, how well we're doing inside the healthcare system. Not so much on the mental health world. So two questions. What percentage of the budget are we spending on mental health? And do we need to craft a benchmark, a checklist where we can measure how, whether or not we're uh, ma- making any progress? So... Uh the two issues I, I understand from officials in the department that you know while uh, the number fluctuates from time to time we are at or above the nine percent uh, there are areas that are not even counted in that uh, percentage of the budget in dealing with mental health and addictions because the service crosses over whether it's mental health or or 
uh, another service. So we haven't counted all of that, but we are at or above the 9% uh, in terms of mental health and addiction spending. Um, the Towards Recovery provided 54 recommendations. Uh, it laid a very solid foundation uh, in terms of uh, you know, building a stronger uh, mental health uh, service and, and delivery of mental health services in the province. That work continues. Uh, we focus now, uh, and in, in last year's budget, uh, there was money put aside for long-term mental health. Uh, we are looking at a step-down facility. We are looking at uh, other um, uh, services uh, to deal with mental health and addictions. Uh, we had an all-party committee uh, scheduled for today, but unfortunately that uh, is postponed to a day later this week. But the all-party committee continues to meet and uh, look at how we improve on and build on the foundation that was put in place under towards recovery. Okay. Uh, in terms of, of the benchmarks that are measured across the country, um, there was a, a, a surgical backlog task force that was put in place. Uh, they made recommendations. Government accepted those recommendations. Uh, the health authority accepted those recommendations. And I believe, uh, Ron, and you can elaborate, but I believe there is a dedicated individual now looking at the uh, implementation of the recommendations that were in that task force. Okay. We continue to look at and work with uh, the health authority on how we can reduce uh, the backlogs and whether it's, uh, you know, getting people that uh, no longer need an acute care bed, otherwise known as ALC or alternative level of care. Uh, they no longer need an acute care bed, but they have nowhere else to go. So figuring out how we reduce that number, and the health authority has done a significant uh, job in reducing that number from six months ago to today to ensuring that things like ambulatory care uh, at the Costco building create additional space to allow for additional surgeries, uh, for example, or increasing the emergency department so we get uh, better flow through. But, Ron, did you want to talk about the resource that was put in place on the recommendations and some of the things we're doing to reduce the surgical backlog? Yeah, so there's a big focus on, on the surgical backlog, and we have teams now all across the province looking at OR capacity, looking at each you know disease type, all kinds of strategies. And, and the positive side is that we're making headway. We're utilizing, for instance, in orthopedics, we started utilizing OR capacity in Carbonier and in St. Anthony. We're starting to utilize the assets all across the province, and that includes people and our facilities. And we are making headway, and I, I do think that the continued focus on that will serve the province quite well. I appreciate you both making time. Hopefully we can do this again in the future because there's so much left to the healthcare conversation. But thanks for doing this this morning. We'll, try, we'll circle back as soon as possible. Thank you. Take care. Yep, Bye-bye. That's Ron Johnson, VP, CEO, Eastern Urban Zone, and the Minister of Health Community Services. Anything you want to pick up on that, you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Petty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing best kind, sir. Um, first of all, Petty, before I get to my subject, I uh, just want to offer my congratulations to my new colleague, uh, Fred Hutton. Uh, certainly seemed like a well-thought-out, clean campaign from what I could see from the outside uh, looking in, and uh, the people have uh, decided. They've chosen Fred, so I wish him all the best. Fair enough. Congratulations to all hands who took a swing at it. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. To the other three candidates as well. And like I say, it seemed like it was a, a good campaign, and certainly Miss Neary, uh, uh, you know, she made it close. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, the people had their say, and uh, so that's how democracy works, as it should. Yep. Um, anyway, um, I wanted to talk about Tent City. Before I did, though, I just wanted to make a quick comment on the story I saw. Uh, my colleague uh, Jody Wall had made some commentary about concerns he had about this whole rideshare thing with the, uh, I think the company was called Red Sea, if I'm not mistaken, um, and and the the check or or the check, I guess it wasn't done, uh, from what I can gather, the vulnerable sector check, and, and I just want to share his concern uh, with that because, you know, uh, obviously with these rideshare companies, no different than a taxi company or whatever. There, you know, there could be children involved. People put. Uh, there's lots of children that go to school uh, utilizing taxis and so on. I would imagine that the same thing could happen with a ride share. So obviously it's critical that that vulnerable sector check be done for anyone involved in that. Um, apparently it wasn't done. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on that or beat anybody up over it, but I would just say that if it was a result of an inadequate policy that, that, that needs to be updated, I certainly encourage the minister to make that change immediately and certainly let us know that she's done that. Yeah, you know, so maybe we just fix the process because, you know, whether it be a legitimate concern that an owner would have any interaction with the general public. It's just the whole way that the, the story unfolded. Yep. Consequently, I wonder, is there a vulnerable sector check required, for instance, someone who owns and operates a traditional taxi company? I don't know, because if there's not, then, of course, the process might, might have to be enhanced to cover all ground. Uh, 100%. I'm not certain, but, I mean, uh, Patty, uh, just think about it. We had that uh, fella, I can't remember his name, he was... Um uh, was it Bolag or whatever so that name seems to ring a bell? Sophia Bolag, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he was driving a taxi cab and so on, and we know what happened there. So uh, if it's not in place for taxis as well, I, I thought it was, but if it's not, then that's something we definitely need to have a look at. And so, you know, uh, again, I'm not beating up on anybody. If a mistake was made, fair enough, fix it. Uh, if it's a case of a policy, because I think the minister did say the policy was followed. So if that's the case, then the policy, I, I would suggest needs to be changed and I would like for her certainly to just come on perhaps and just give us assurances that that has been done or it's in the process of being done. Fair enough. Let's yep. get to your topic because sure. I'm kind of out of whack. I went too long with uh, the minister. Sure. No no, no worry. No worry. Hey, listen, that was an important conversation and we need those updates and uh, I, I'm glad you did that. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I would received a, a call from an individual, I guess, who was an advocate and who has uh, been down um, uh, down there to the um, colonial building and so on, and uh, you know indicated to me that there's still six people um, that are uh, at tent city uh, and you know I, I think about the big uh, snowfall we just had, and we know that there's another big one um, being forecasted i think for for this weekend. I hope we don't get it, but they're saying we we probably will. Uh, and we still have individuals down there. Um, you know, I, I was told yesterday that they're down there, that the propane they had that they were used for heat has run out. They have no food. And that 
all these people that were, I guess, associated to the task force, and there was people down there. There was, you know, when this was all a big topic in the media and so on before Christmas, and there was social workers down there and counselors and and you know all these people trying to help individuals and move them out and find them somewhere. But you know, um, then I guess we went into the Christmas period, and it's not really uh, you know top, uh, top of mind on the on the news like it was. And uh, yet we still have uh, six people down there. And it was indicated to me that uh, there was three people in the Cowan Heights area tenting in uh, up in the woods somewhere. Um, Southside Road, I was told, there was other people. And it could be as many as uh, 25, 30 people that are in tents in various areas throughout the city, including down by the Colonial Building. So, uh, you know, I- I'm only going by what I'm, I- I'm told. I'm trying to reach out to the minister to find out what's going on there. But... I would hate to think, uh, particularly with, you know, uh, the winter upon us, uh, that they've simply just been left now to their own devices. And I understand, you know, perhaps there's issues there with some of these people with uh, addictions. Perhaps they're not necessarily the most, you know, easiest to to, to, to reason with, perhaps, um, one might argue. But at the end of the day, they're human beings, uh, and we can't let people freeze to that. So if there is nobody down at Tent City and there's nobody checking on these other sites, then I certainly encourage the government to to do so. I think society, as we've heard before, is judged on how we treat our most vulnerable, and uh, it's simply not good enough to put our hands up in the air and say, you know, leave them on their own. If they freeze to that, so be it. I mean, we we, we cannot do this. Yeah, and what the Comfort Inn announcements, a lot of the conversation kind of stopped because people kind of maybe felt like, well, there's the solution, when that's not entirely the actual solution that we need, but the conversation has changed. I'm especially late for the break, Paul, but I appreciate the time. No no problem, Patty. And as I said, the, the Comfort Inn, that's not happening until March. Yep. So uh, between now and March, we get all these snowfalls, freezing cold weather. What happens to these people? So please, Minister, if you're listening, I know your staff are, please get out there and check on these people and see what we can do to help. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Paul Lane, independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. I wish we had more time, but let's do it anyway. Line number one, say good morning to the newly elected member of the House of Assembly in the by-election yesterday. Conception Bay, East Bell Island, will now be represented by Liberal Fred Hutton. Good morning, Fred. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How about so, you? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. A little bit tired, but look, I know you're, you've got a very busy show here this morning. And uh, I just want to pop, pop on for a quick second just to say thanks to all the volunteers who helped with the campaign over the last uh, four weeks during the writ period. And in a couple of weeks uh, prior to that, during Christmas, there was that pause. Over 100 people helped out, and I, I cannot thank them enough for uh, what they've done. And, of course, I also just want to say thanks to all the uh, voters in Conception Baseball Island who uh, got out, either in the advance poll, through special ballots, or during the uh, one-day delayed campaign uh, yesterday to vote in the election. It, it means a lot, and um, I just want to come on and just say thanks so much to everybody for for, for participating. Congratulations uh, to you, you and to everyone who supported you as a volunteer, say, for instance. Uh, Fred, during the campaign, there was one comment that, you know, you've been asked about, and I'm going to do it again. You said that you have the ear of the premier. One phone call, you get a road paved on Bell Island. Or, uh, that's a paraphrase. So yeah. given the issue and the coverage that we've always had about the politics of pavement as opposed to engineers prioritizing one road or another, early tenders, five-year plan, do you regret saying it? Because for some people, that was a bit cringy to think, wait, now, do I have to have someone on the government side to get a bit of pavement? 
No, and it, and it's, it, as people know, it's not true because this the district that I'm in, uh, Conception Bay, East Bell Island, has had lots of pavement over the last five or six years, and it's been an opposition-held district. It it, it was uh, it was something that was said in a in a forum, candidates forum on Bell Island, that took about I don't know almost two hours. I think it was an hour and 48 minutes or whatever, because I, I saw that the uh, Facebook post afterwards, it was, it was just said, but not, that is not the way it's done. Obviously, Patty, they do it by a priority basis. The folks at transportation and infrastructure get information from MHAs, from councils, from uh, people in various districts, you know, that the full list of what pavement goes down is put out publicly every year. And obviously, districts that aren't held by the provincial government get it. But obviously, if you're on the government side, you get to spend more time with the minister or with whatever minister of whatever department or the premier. And it, it is not the way it works. And uh, it was just something. I mean, there was a lot said during that hour and 45 minutes. That was just one sentence that came out of it. Fred, have you been told you're going to get a ministerial portfolio? <laughs> no. Patty, I just I haven't even really wrapped my head around the fact that this is real at this point. Um, obviously, I, I went into it to win, obviously, and we did, which is great. Uh, at this point, there's a, a bit of a learning curve. There's an orientation. I did an interview with uh, your folks earlier today with uh, Ben and Jerry Lynn, and they were asking, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, right after I left the studio, I got a call from the uh, the clerk of the House of Assembly who said, well, I happened to hear your interview. So here I am. I'm going to be sending you over some information, some forms you got to fill out. There's orientation. There's training. So I'll go through that first. Uh, I think the House sits early March. Those, that'll be my first opportunity to go into the legislature. And uh, this is this is step one here today of trying to figure out what I've got to do to navigate it. I mean, obviously, I, I do have a pretty good idea of what it, an MHA does once they're elected. But in terms of the process of actually getting an office set up, a constituency office, all that stuff, that's going to come in the next couple of weeks. And that's kind of where I'm focused right now. And I've already actually got a bunch of meetings set up with uh, – and I think I've mentioned this to you before – and others. Uh, there's there's really three parts to this district. There's the Paradise part, there's the Portugal Cove St. Phillips part, and there's the uh, Belle Island part, all with unique and individual uh, needs and requirements and things that they want to get done. So there's a fair bit of work to do there just to wrap my head around that, and that's that's what I'm going to be focused on over the next few months. Uh, I wish we had more time. There's lots of issues I'd like to discuss with you this morning, but we'll circle back once you get into the role sworn in, and we'll do this again. I appreciate your time, Fred. Congratulations one more time. Happy to do it. And once again, thanks to all the voters and to all the volunteers, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fred Hutton, the new Liberal member for Conception Bay East Bell Island. You know, there's a question I just saw now as I was saying goodbye. You know, uh, this person would ask me, like Fred, about his thoughts on the poor voter turnout. By-elections, I mean, I think there was 45 is a big number compared to uh, by-elections of the past. And, you know, I guess thoughts of anyone who has won an election is that I got more votes than everybody else, so consequently I won. I don't know if there was much of an answer coming, but it's an interesting question. Maybe next time we'll go down that path. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Denny Briere, who a petrophysicist talking about the quest to search for natural natural hydrogen. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Denny Briere is a petrophysicist and vice president of Calgary-based Chapman Hydrogen and Petroleum Engineering, and he joins us on line number three. Good morning, Mr. Briere. You're on the air. Hello there. Thanks for making time for the program. Thank you for calling. A lot of conversation in this province about hydrogen, notably green hydrogen, of course, using renewables, in this case, wind. But we're talking about natural or white hydrogen with you this morning. If you don't mind, I'd like you to take us back to Mali in 1987 and the initial discovery. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, it was uh, the chief of the village who uh, was tired of having his men uh, dig uh, their water wells by hand. They usually have to dig down to about 20 meters. So he decided back in 1987 to hire some uh, uh, water welling company, water well drilling company, so that uh, they could uh, drill deeper and have water for all year round because those uh, water wells that they had dug uh, dried up sometimes. And so they didn't have water year-round. And so when they hired these Italian drillers to come out, they had drilled a well uh, in the north part of the uh, village. And uh, they encountered the same water, but they wanted to go deeper. So as they were drilling down, uh, they didn't encounter any deeper uh, source of drinking water. So they tried another well on the west side and did the same thing. And uh, it was also not showing up any deep water. So they tried a third well on the east side of the village, and as they were drilling it, a boy from the village came running over to the Italian and said there was a wind coming out of that second well. So the macho Italian went walking over with with a cigarette, and uh, it lit the uh, a huge uh, fire that lasted for about a month. He he himself wasn't uh, killed, but uh, he was burned, and they eventually put the fire out and put a little uh, uh, equipment at the surface of valve and uh, surrounded it with a little mud hut and left it there for years. So that... Uh, it's fascinating to discover simply because someone had a cigarette burning and uh, all of a sudden hydrogen caught fire. So then all the way from 87 to 2012, then you got back involved to do some laboratory testing showing that it was 98% pure hydrogen. Then production began in 2014. It's the only production site in the world for this natural hydrogen. You know, the thought was that people didn't even think that these finds existed because the hydrogen is so small, but no one was really looking for it. But now there's a big thirst for this, what people refer to as a transit fuel. Can you help us understand what's happening? Before we get to your uh, summer plans here in the Canadian Shield, can you tell us what's going on in places like Spain, Germany, Australia, and the United States in looking for these deposits? Yes, after uh, the people uh, uh, figured out that this natural hydrogen does accumulate and you can produce it and uh, make electricity from it, uh, it, it really sparked an interest all over the, all over the world. So there has been uh, uh, hydrogen uh, uh, discoveries in Oman and Russia and Spain and uh, USA and Brazil and Australia and uh, probably uh, the uh, uh, one that's likely going to spark the most interest uh, we believe is in Australia they have uh, uh, regulations in their country to be able to allow people to explore for natural hydrogen so that's a, there's a big hydrogen exploration boom going on there another huge uh, discovery is in France and uh, they uh, are bragging to be the uh, probably the world's leader in production once they get going on their discovery. And there's uh, some uh, in the Pyrenees on the Spain side and on the France side, there's also uh, people drilling for hydrogen there. In the USA, uh, the company has drilled in Nebraska to uh, the Mid-Continent Fault, and they've, they've uh, determined that there's hydrogen uh, located on their, on their well logs, and they're testing for it now. So, Most of the, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. Most of the uh, uh, work done on the uh, theories of why hydrogen is there is uh, based on uh, water rock chemical reactions. What leads you to believe you're going to have any luck in uh, evaluating the Canadian Shield? What is it? Is it about the type of rock or what's the, what leads you to, to go to that part of the country? 
saw that uh, the type of rocks that exist uh, in Mali uh, are the same kind of rocks that exist here in our in our own country on the Canadian Shield, the ancient rocks. We have the, some of the oldest rocks in the world. So we believe that uh, when we go into Ontario, uh, there has been a professor at the University of Toronto, Barbara Sherwood Lawler, that has tested uh, some uh, uh, gas and water samples in, in and around the rocks around uh, Ontario, and she has found that uh, there are uh, uh, certain percentages of hydrogen gas that are located there. So we're just going to verify that and going to explore in that same region that uh, uh, we hope to be able to get uh, have success in finding an accumulation of natural hydrogen there. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates that there might be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 megatons of hydrogen accessible. What do you think that means for some of the programs that we've seen regarding gray hydrogen and green hydrogen, which is all the rage here in this country, and, you know, uh, some of the arrangements or MOUs that have been signed with countries like Germany. So what does that deposit estimation mean for the other technologies to produce hydrogen? Yes, the uh, uh, Jeffrey Ellis from the USGS has made those kind of estimates also, and uh, it it is a, a combination of uh, all sorts of colors of uh, hydrogen. In particular, the, the Americans are chasing uh, to, uh, uh, orange hydrogen to be able to um, induce uh, chemical reaction uh, with the water rock uh, arrangement, so that uh, they have lots of those kinds of mafic rocks, and they want to be able to stimulate them to be able to produce. Uh, uh, orange hydrogen, which is a chemical reaction that they hope to get H2 off-gassed. Now, the um, uh, green hydrogen and uh, blue hydrogen for methane reformation, uh, whether you sequester the carbon or not to make it gray, it's uh, uh, obviously um, a lot of uh, man-made hydrogen, but uh, the, the off-gassing of hydrogen all over the planet, from the continents to the oceans, have a huge amount of uh, uh, hydrogen escaping uh, every year. So, yes, that that uh, megatons uh, estimate from the USGS is, I think, all of those uh, white and orange and uh, uh, hydrogen that are being uh, found naturally, but also uh, what can be produced as well. Yeah, they talk about gray hydrogen being fueled by uh, natural gas, green by, in this case, wind in this province. So what's the process of, you know, exploring is one thing, but producing. Isn't it an expensive exercise to produce natural hydrogen when and if the business model is conducive? Correct. The uh, costs of uh, actually manufacturing hydrogen are in the order of maybe um, 10 to $35 uh, dollars a kilo, and that uh, uh, certainly doesn't compete with uh, uh, a gallon of gasoline at the moment. But uh, the, the idea is that uh, uh, soon, uh, with more and more uh, requirements for decarbonization, uh, they will have uh, figured out ways to better make uh, electrolyzers to uh, uh, split water uh, from uh, electricity from wind power like you have there in Newfoundland or uh, solar and other places so that the mechanism to generate electricity is uh, a bit cheaper so that green hydrogen can be produced uh, with lower uh, uh, costs but it still wouldn't compete with uh, natural white hydrogen that just comes out of the ground that we expect perhaps uh, under a dollar uh, per kilo uh, when those 
deposits are found. I guess it's all about scale and magnitude. So we know hydrogen is being used, for instance, at fertilizer facilities, which is interesting because the green hydrogen produced here, they're talking about shipping it via ammonia to accommodate the fertilizer industry once again. It's used in refineries. Can you help us understand the status of the progress for the creation of hydrogen fuel cells, whether that be for uh, transport trucks or buses or trains or maybe private individual vehicles? Where are we in that process? Well, the uh, fuel cell industry uh, has been uh, ongoing now for many years, and uh, in fact, there's a uh, kind of a fuel cell corridor uh, being uh, made uh, in the U.S. and also up in Canada, uh, Montreal and Quebec, and uh, soon to be other places in Canada. The fuel cells uh, have uh, been requiring very, very pure uh, hydrogen gas, uh, 99.999% purity for them to operate uh, efficiently. And uh, large sizes of uh, uh, output of uh, uh, the fuel cells are are being made for uh, big uh, transportation equipment, uh, large uh, trucks and uh, trains, and even now uh, some uh, air uh, travel uh, arrangements are being made with fuel cells. So that the industry is becoming quite mature and uh, it's a, uh, a way that uh, we'll be able to be uh, uh, replacing batteries uh, for uh, any kind of uh, vehicles. How would they compare, for instance, with range and reliability? You know, we talk about lithium batteries and electric vehicles at this point. In cold weather, like we're experiencing here today, maybe a drop-off of some 30% in range per charge. What's the reliability and issues regarding hydrogen fuel cells and adverse weather conditions, especially cold? Well, the uh, uh, arrangements for uh, uh, the deep freeze that we have up here in Canada is uh, still... uh, probably not as efficient as it would be in uh, warmer countries that uh, certainly uh, you put your uh, finger on a, an important component, but Ballard uh, uh, has been uh, moving their fuel cell uh, manufacturing to very uh, efficient uh, uh, operations for the Canadian uh, environment, so we, we certainly can find uh, vehicles that can travel uh, 500 miles on a fuel cell uh, with its uh, compressed hydrogen. When are you and your team making your way to northern Ontario for this summer's exercise? Pardon? When are you, goes, when are you guys going to northern Ontario to do some uh, search? Yes, we, uh, we, we hope to be able to put boots on the ground when the uh, snow melts and have uh, uh, our uh, uh, way to be able to take our field equipment uh, into the moose pasture up and around northern Ontario this summertime. I really appreciate the time this morning, Mr. Briere, and I look forward to speaking with you after you've had your summer of exploration. <laughs> Thank you. Take good care. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Ted Briere, petrophysicist and vice president of Calgary-based Chapman Hydrogen and Petroleum Engineering. Let's take a break. When we come back, stands in the queue to talk about an insurance company issue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Stan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. How are you doing? Not so bad. Um, just wondering now, I, I, just before Christmas, I got a call from my insurance company, House Insurance, and apparently they require me to take pictures of my house totally inside and outside, um, you know, serial numbers of uh, water boilers, and looking at the electrical panels, which I can understand all that, but to take pictures of everything in my house, every room in my house except for the bedrooms, uh, and then roof, uh, you know, the house outside, and all you know, every all the grounds I guess too. 
I'm wondering, is this something that's normal? I've never heard that before. I've had to provide. Uh, when I changed insurance providers there a number of years ago, they asked me for the same thing. It didn't really strike me as odd, as opposed to someone coming in and taking the pictures for the company. They asked me if I would provide some pictures, which I did. So you think it's strange or some sort of invasion or what have you? Well, uh, it, it, it does seem like a, an invasion of privacy to my mind. I mean, um, what is it they're looking for? I've been with the company for 25 years. Uh, okay. And I've, you know, I, I even called them in myself a, a few years back to do an assessment. So I, I really don't understand. And like I said, if it's if this is typical, if it's normal, everybody's doing it, then that's fine. But uh, I just don't understand. It, it doesn't sound <laughs> it doesn't sound right to me. Fair enough. And I mean, we'll let the listeners chime in as to whether or not that's their experience as well. For me, these types of issues all boil down to how the information is stored and disseminated. If simply exactly. my insurance representative has that on their own digital file and is not available to all hands working in the company from administrative staff right through uh, the uh, adjusters and all the rest of it, if it's just kept in my file, in my file alone, with the eyes of simply that person and or their supervisor, then I wouldn't be too shook up about it but that's always the trick isn't it who has access to that information absolutely and that's that's my main concern it's not that i've got anything to hide but you know yes maybe somebody can come in and have a look around but i still don't like the idea of taking pictures Fair enough. I don't, like I said, it didn't really phase me because I just, you know, felt it was part of a, a fairly normal insurance policy arrangement. But now that I think about it, maybe I was a bit too reckless. I simply sent them along. So I'll let the listeners chime in to uh, let us know what they think of the issue. There's also a couple of friends of mine work in the industry uh, and they listen to the program. Whenever insurance is mentioned, they're very quick to reach out. So if they do that, I'll talk about what the uh, insurance companies are saying when I get that info. That sounds good. Happy to do it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Welcome, Stan. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. What would you like me to do here, Dave, before we get up against the news break? Which of these callers? I can't see your fingers. Okay. One, two, three. Okay. Let's go to line number three. Ron, you're on the air. Yeah. Okay. Am I on? You are on. Okay, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Um... Yeah, what I'm calling about today is uh, I was getting straightened away this year at my dental appointments for myself and my wife. I'm a senior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking, I said, how is this government program working? I knew it was coming out for dental care with no insurance and all that, which I don't have insurance. And uh, so I phoned the dentist's office. They gave me a number to phone, government number. I phoned a number, and they said, enter your your number, that, like there's a number on the top hand, right-hand side of the page you received in the mail, which I didn't receive. So I know it comes out like, and, and maybe you can enlighten me and the rest of your listeners, and maybe even yourself. I don't know. And uh, uh, so when I looked on the on the site, it says the age rollout is like above eighty something now, and then it goes down incrementally over the next few months. Do you know much about that program? I know a little bit about it. So there are a couple of very specific numbers to call to get information about the Canadian Dental Care Plan. And you're right, they did start with a sort of a strange age of 87 plus. But very quickly, that's moving down in numbers to accommodate more seniors. It was launched initially with children, and now they've rolled it up a bit more. I don't know what the age is of eligibility today, but I do have numbers for people to contact with general questions about it. The income threshold is said to... uh, 
be of benefit to some 9 million Canadians. It's all based on net family income. So if you make $90,000 or less in net family income, you're eligible for this program. If you make $70,000 or less of net family income, there's no copay. So there's a couple of moving targets there about what your copay might be, say, for instance, if you make seventy-five dollars or $85,000. So there's a couple of questions that I can't answer because that's that's a formula that the CRA uses. But the general phone line for these questions regarding the health plan is, uh, I can give it to you if you like. Sure. Sure. It's one eight three three. Yeah. 537. Yeah. 4342. Okay, got that. And uh, when you say co-pay, uh, is that if you got your own insurance, is it, or something, is it? No, if you make 90000 say or $89,000, there will be some money coming out of pocket in the form of a co-pay. What that number is is based on your income, so I can't give you a definitive number. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but if you make $70,000 or less, there will be zero co-pay. Oh. And it's a pretty wide coverage here. So diagnostics, examinations, x-rays, restorative yeah. services, uh, dentures. Yeah. Da, 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 what else is inside there? There's uh, fillings and yeah. root canal treatments. So it's a pretty all-encompassing plan. Yeah. But, of course, not everyone will be eligible. So if you have insurance or if you exceed the net family income numbers that I mentioned, you're not eligible. Yeah, and one last thing before you go there is uh, um, when I looked it up online, just for your, your listeners, like I'm, I'm between the age 65, 70, like I'm, I'll be 68 this year. And myself, my wife's appointments were like, say, for April and stuff like that. But in our age category, it rolls out in May. Yep. So I'm thinking what I'm going to do is just push the because we fit the criteria, I think, right? So we're going to push our appointments out. So, you know, instead of us paying like four or five hundred bucks out for whatever, we can, you know, take avail of the program there, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I'll have a look for the schedule for the actual age rollout dates. Yeah. It, it is happening very quickly from 87. We, we were told that 87 would be 80 within a matter of a couple of weeks and then down yeah. from there. So I'll have a look at the age schedule. But there's the basic information that I can yeah. share with you today. The schedule, it do drop out pretty quick. Like I said, by, by May, it's, eight, it's 65 years old. So Yeah, there you go. Okay, thanks for your time. Appreciate yours. And thanks. the information. Okay, bye-bye. No problem, Ron. Bye-bye. Bye. So just a couple of mentions. I did say insurance listeners would be chiming in. Okay, so this person's an agent, and they, she says the insurance companies have the right to get photos of the outside of the home for unrepaired damage or liability issues, such as mother-in-law doors. Photos can be requested of the inside again to make sure there are no liability concerns, no railings on the stairs, etc., and the water tank is required to ensure it's not old and can leak to cause damage. Appreciate that coming from an insurance agent. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, still a bulk of time left to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, listen to uh, to uh, Ron Johnson and the minister. I just finished yesterday in Supreme Court, and I lost with regards to getting the contracts for the Compass Group and their associates or their affiliates or whatever open to the public. Eastern Health just paid a law firm a lot of money to keep uh, these contracts private and confidential. So I lost into the fact that the judge ruled that the terms of the contract matter, whatever, would hurt the Commerce Group financially or commercially or whatever, and he took that 
to override the fact that this is in the public interest. So the public interest comes second to our right to have these contracts open. So what Ron is saying is that there's a way there to get these contracts open. Well, right now, it's the only one who can open them is the leader of the uh, public body, which is Dave Diamond. If Dave Diamond don't want it open, it can't be opened. And that's a ruling now before the Supreme Court. Also, too, if I heard him right, uh, he said that the Commerce contract was worth 800000 uh, I asked him twice. Yeah. Uh, Patty, they have, from the information that I got that they supplied to me, they got now, since the increase in employees in uh, the Commerce Group, to approximately 40 with Central Health brought in. They had about 20 there before. So say they have 40 employees, 800000 That's $20,000 a year each. There's nobody working for $20,000 a year each. So something like they're not being honest and truthful about where it's to. There's something hidden away somewhere because, you know, with uh, as far as I know, too, from the information I got, I think lowest paid compass uh, is around 40000 Uh Put benefits and everything on that or whatever they got, I don't know, probably 60000 The Commerce Group is not losing $40,000 a year on per employee. They're making Billions and billions. Like, the stuff that they set on there just don't add up. And then the tendering issue. They got it written into the parts of the contract that I do have that the Compass Group does not basically have to uh, go with lowest tender. So uh, I've gone to the Auditor General. I've gone to the Chief Procurement Officer. I've gone to all of these people where he's saying that I can get this information, but they won't supply it. So why? Uh, like, as far as I'm concerned, all that they said there has left more confusion. Uh, does not factual all onto what it said. Now, as far as I can remember, and I, I'll be corrected if necessary, but three years ago when the contract was announced, uh, Dave Diamond, I believe, announced that it was worth $300 million, $30 million a year for 10 years. But that... Also into the contract, there's interest that goes on that every year compound, so that is roughly double at the end of 10 years. But, you know, I'm open for somebody to say or other people that heard or whatever three years ago when this contract was announced that these are the figures that I'm correct on. Uh, if I'm wrong, I apologize, but something put it in my head of what I remember. So, you know, I, I'm open that well, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I apologize or whatever. Do whatever is necessary to correct it. But I don't believe I am. And I think this this morning was only just a, a con game to get it there of all this money that's leaving this province. I started with the exact questions that you suggested I should start with, and <laughs> I got the answers that I got. So I don't know anything beyond what I was told. If someone is being dishonest or disingenuous, I really don't know. I'm currently looking for more information myself because, as you heard me also say to them, uh, both Mr. Johnson and Minister Osborne, we would like to have them back to revisit some of the conversation we had this morning and to expand on some other issues we didn't get to. Well, I had conversations before four about the previous contract Ron Johnson signed. I had meetings with him and another member there, Ken Beard, I think was an executive in meetings. And Ron Johnson uh, agreed that there was very little 
in these contracts on behalf of Newfoundlanders. Uh, and also that contract should not have been signed. Now, I couldn't get it to the Supreme Court to uh, go and uh, rule on if the contract was valid or not, because a lot of stuff in this contract is against the democracy, hiring practices of the province, the Tendering Act. All of this stuff is being broken in these contracts. And to get it clear to the people, like, you know, we need a wide-open uh, economy that we can figure out. And there's no way, as far as I'm concerned, that the rights of public interest should have the laws in their favour that these interests are protected over anything else of any company or anything else, a private body or whatever. Because this is our health care. This is our future and the future of our grandkids. And if this contract stays as is and becomes legal, our health care is gone. We're bankrupt. They're going to skin us for every dollar that they can get. And uh, look, any company who puts in an invoice and then charges back the banking fees to the person they got the check from or the deposit from, you know, that's going a bit far. So when they give an invoice, uh, you know, we're, we're paying for it so many times that it's just ridiculous, this whole thing, and it should be all brought forward out publicly debated. And I'd like to get Brown Johnson and Dave Diamond and Tom Osborne in the front of a panel or in the front, in the front of somebody where we can ask the questions and they got the answer. And I welcome that. I'm going to have another look around here this afternoon or tomorrow when I get a chance and see if I can put some additional meat on the bone, revisit it if and when possible, which I think will be because I think they both committed to being willing to circle back. So I'll do what I can. I can only ask the questions, and I can only get the answers that are provided. That's pretty much the basics of how this works. But One other thing. I'd like to thank uh, Jeff Dwyer, uh, the member for Buren uh, area and whatever. He's my member. And uh, he came to the court anyway to support me. And the judge remarked and the other people remarked that they think this is the first time ever a MHA ever went to court for one of their constituents. So you and Dave, uh, you and him and Doc and all the rest of it and Wade Locke at the university, everybody that has supported me all over the years and everything else, I think. And I never wanted to the battle but I don't know what's going to happen to it but I need support and we need support we need all the support that we can get to get these documents opened up so the truth comes out all I want is the truth and all I want is protection for it uh, the crown or the uh, liars lost into the fact that because I was fighting for it in the public interest I never had to pay costs so this was a plus to the residents province that anybody wants to take the government to court or whatever that they're not going to be held liable for the cost due to court action in the public's interest so that's a very point a very important issue too that was you know uh pointed out into the court so you know there's a couple of good things into this thing but like i said it's still uh we lost the right to open the contract so what Ron Johnson said about getting copies of the contract. 
they did the complete opposite by hiring a law firm at expensive cost to prevent me from getting the contracts. And I went through every legal avenue to get them. So what he's talking about, I don't know. I don't know, but I'll do the follow-up, and I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call, Mike. And thank you very much, Penny. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, you mentioned Jeff Dwyer. Of course, Jeff Dwyer is the PC member for Placentia West Bellevue. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's Tony Wakeham. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, thanks, Patty. I uh, want to start off by uh, thanking the people of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, who uh, came out to vote in the uh, in the by-election that was just held. Uh, we were set up yesterday at the Legion, and as I walked around the Legion and looked at the pictures on the walls and the and the memorial uh, things of people, different people that had fought in different wars. It wasn't hard to understand that we were here, we are in a legion where so many people fought to protect us and give us that democratic right that we currently enjoy. And that wasn't lost on me yesterday in the thought that uh, here we are exercising that right by actually getting out to vote in an election. You know, the the result was not what we wanted, uh, but we had a uh, great team. And certainly we had an outstanding candidate in Tina Neary, and I think as the by-election went on, people who got to meet Tina and talk with Tina certainly appreciate what she what she brought as a candidate to this by-election. And I also, of course, want to publicly uh, thank and congratulate Fred Hutton on his uh, victory. Fair enough. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some extended commentary based on by-election results, you know. Fred last night will say that this is an endorsement of Premier Fury. Then you'll hear people say that maybe because the PC stronghold was lost after 20 years, that is some sort of condemnation of the party or you specifically. I don't know if you heard me off the top of the show. I always find that to be a bit of a stretch on both sides of the coin. But when and if you were confronted with, you know, this is a question about the PC party after losing a stronghold seat, what do you say in response? Well, I I think you're absolutely correct on that uh, Patty, this was a much a David Brazel seat as it was a PC stronghold, and I think the people of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, uh, David Brazel represented them well over the years, and uh, and that was the the way that they looked at this seat. In some ways, I think we went into this as an underdog, in, in terms of that. I mean, we had a, a very popular MHA retiring, and so it was opened up, and this seat, uh, you know, when it came to the Liberals, they had the uh, the Premier who lived in the district. They had a well-known liberal candidate who lived in the district, and they certainly uh, went about ensuring that they uh, they tried to capture this district. And what was really evident was the uh, fact that uh, many of the uh, things that were of concern to the people of the district uh, that had been raised by David Brazel and others over the last number of years were suddenly put on the front burner, and uh, and the people of the district were told that these things were going to happen. You know, whether it was the return of the health clinic in Portugal Cove, uh, that was uh, shouted, oh, stay tuned on that one. Whether it was the shore base manager for the ferry that was going to be advertised in the next couple of weeks. Whether it was the school in paradise or whether, as we all know, is how you can manage to get roads repaired immediately. So, you know, these are all commitments that the uh, the liberals have made during this by-election, and uh, we will certainly hold them to account. 
uh, let's see where we go. I mean, uh, they announced very quickly last night that there will be an ad out for the shore manager. Okay. Then, you know, I had a chance to speak with Fred, albeit briefly. There's a lot of stuff that I'd like to discuss with him. Maybe some of the things he said on the campaign trail and some of the issues that have not gone attended to, but apparently now all of a sudden will. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Tony, I think you want to also talk about the comfort in this morning. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, uh, here we go again. When we talk about transparency and accountability so often, and, and we both know that those words get misused and abused all the time. But when you have an unsolicited bid uh, for for this type of accommodation and you award it without going out to a tender, I mean, I heard the uh, Minister of Health on earlier talking about the procurement process, the procurement process. Well, there was no procurement process followed in this particular case. I've had other hotel owners in this city reach out to me and suggest that they offered to uh, to be involved. Would have loved to have an opportunity to bid on uh, that type of arrangement. If this if this was going to be the way that government dealt with the homeless situation here in the city of St. John's, they would have loved to have an opportunity to bid on it. But we see again simply uh, a announcement of a significant expenditure uh, without any kind of procurement process. And again, your question to the Minister of Health this morning uh, around the services, the wraparound services that are going to be in place. I did not hear a definitive answer on what those would look like. We heard talks of what it may look like, but one would think if this is scheduled to open in March that all of that would be in place by now. But it sure doesn't seem that way. No, and I'll follow up all the, with the various ministers who are responsible. Now, you're pointing out the property value compared to the lease value, which we know is some $21 million over the course of three years. Help me understand the link that you're making, because if you say the property value based on city tax records is at $3.7 million, and yet a point well taken regarding no tender or RFP on this front, an unsolicited piece of business, which is good for the business owner, questionable for the rest of us. So what's the link you're with property value because, for instance, say Verifin. Verifin's acquired by NASDAQ for $2.7 billion, but their building's only worth what the building is worth. Revenue stream and product uh, productivity and IP in a building is the business. The property is just simply the property. So what's the link you're making there? Well, I guess what I'm trying to point out, the fact is if the, if it's the, if government of Newfoundland and Labrador, because of a lack of planning, uh, has now decided that hotel accommodations are going to be a part of the solution uh, for our homeless situation here in the city of St. John's, and it's going to be over such an extended period of time, and we're paying $21 million to rent the building for all intents and purposes, uh, because we don't know what the extra costs are going to be associated with that, then when you look at the value of the building and say, okay, what would it have cost us to buy the thing? Uh, That's the only reference I make to that, because at the end of the day, when you look at the difference that this is a very, uh, this company that has this arrangement is obviously going to have 100% occupancy guaranteed at a certain rate for the next three years. That's a pretty sweet deal. No question. And I don't know if this is good or bad or how to label it at this moment in time. We just don't really know enough about all of the moving parts you know the for instance total cost 
Seven million dollars does not include everything. Like, for instance, it does include any of the meals, is my understanding. So that's a pretty big bill when we talk about three meals a day, 365 times three. So we don't know how, how that works. We really don't know what staffing level. I got some information from Ron Johnson this morning regarding one discipline per physical, mental health, and addictions treatment. So that's something that I hadn't learned at this uh, stage. I really don't know much about the vetting process for who will be eligible to stay here. The wraparound supports not only for health-related matters, but opportunities to have full implementation, for instance, of the employment stabilization plan. You know, things that we don't know, because if this just turns into a quasi-emergency shelter, albeit with a lock per door, then we're really not advancing very far. So I still got a lot of questions I need answers to. And I think everybody in the in the public is looking for those same answers. Again, this is another example of this liberal government's reaction, because all of those details, you would think that all of that information would have already been done, assigned, it could have been an RFP, all of this could have been done ahead of time. So we wouldn't be here today wondering about what those wraparound services are going to look like or wondering what those additional costs are. The government should have been able to provide all that up front at the time they make these announcements. Instead, we, we continuously hear announcement after announcement, and it's only after the announcement is made that the government starts working on, well, what's it going to look like? If not this, then what? Because we know with the mercy shelter system, certainly the furthest thing from ideal, if it's not this type of transition arrangement, so are you simply saying go back to the drawing board, RFP, we'll see what else is out there, maybe entertain a purchase versus a lease. So if not this, what? Well, again, that, that's the whole point. The whole point is that if this is part of the solution on an interim basis, then oh, that's one thing. But what's the long-term plan to get to the permanent solution? Because surely this is not the long-term solution. So what I'm, and at the same time as you're announcing these interim solutions, what homework have you done to ensure that this was the best option, to ensure that this is the best way to go? I mean, that's the that's the situation here. We have no information on how they came up with this, other than to hear that it was an unsolicited proposal. So again, where was where's government's planning process? Where are they too? What options did they consider? What other options were they looking at out there? What could they have done? We've heard a lot of creative solutions from other provinces in terms of tiny homes and, and things like that. But I mean, this homeless situation is, is not just about people who are homeless. It's about people who are looking for homes. I mean, when you think about it, right across this province of ours, Newfoundland and Labrador, there are a lot of people who are couch surfing. There are a lot of people who can't afford to stay in their homes because of the high cost of living, the high heating costs, and everything else. We have people now who can't afford to buy homes because of the rising interest rates. So there's lots of things that are related here in the whole cost of living. And, and that's why, you know, as a government, I think it's important to be out front and to be talking about these, this type of planning. So we're not simply jumping from one crisis to another continuously, which is what it appears to be happening. Tony, we're out of time, but I appreciate yours. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tony Wake and PC leader, member for Stephenville Port of Port. All right, good show today. Bounced around a lot of stuff here. Boy. All right, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.